John, how do you bridge the gap here between your old job and your new job? Yes. So my old job was running around and hitting people, first for Penn State, then for the Ravens. John Urschel spent years on the offensive line of the Baltimore Ravens, and his post-football life is almost nothing like that of his peers. And my current job is a junior fellow for Harvard, doing lots of math, trying to solve really hard math problems, and occasionally running into a paper cut here or there. (laughs) John completed his PhD in mathematics at MIT last year, And so we asked him about another really hard math problem, the culture war running through his old sport. Well, when you watch football now and announcers are are complaining about analytics (laughs) and, and coaches are making decisions that are bringing great backlash to them for daring to indulge in the practice, the dark art of mathematics. What, what do you think when you hear that stuff? I think it's a, it's a work in progress. There's a lot of things going on. Analysis of football from a quantitative point of view often comes from someone who has never played football in their lives. Mm-hmm. And to be able to trust that person and understand what they're saying and to be able to use that, it takes a lot of communication, it takes a lot of trust, and it takes a lot of understanding. It's not always the easiest thing to do, and it can often take time to build that sort of rapport between a football decision maker and a mathematician or a statistician. You need to be able to take what you know, take what you sort of understand, and get to a point where a football decision maker roughly understands what you're telling them and understands the conditions under which what you're saying is true. It sounds like they could use uh, one of the most accomplished mathematicians in the country who may or may not have just recently completed a PhD program who also once played offensive line for the Baltimore Ravens. I I don't know who that is. Okay, so yes, this is a sports podcast. This is ESPN. We are the worldwide leader. We do sports. And John's Ravens are about to take on Tom Brady tonight. I get all of that. But the reason our show keeps talking about data and numbers from all of these angles now is not because I'm like really good at math or anything. I actually find high-level math vaguely terrifying. But I do absolutely respect it. So today we bring you the completely unique perspective of John Urschel, a human Venn diagram whose life might hold solutions for two very disparate sorts of fields. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, October 27th. This is ESPN Daily. So, John, I mean, look, I I know you first and foremost as the only person who has ever left the NFL to become an actual high-level mathematician. These are two pursuits that rarely wind up competing for the love of the same person at the highest levels. But what was the order of operations, as it were, for you growing up? Like, did you fall in love with football first or or with math? It's like a back and forth, I would say. So 
When I was really little, all I wanted to do, like the thing I loved doing the most, was just like solving puzzles. I just loved like little like mind games, brain teasers, quantitative games. And like, this is all I wanted to do all day. Like math problems that don't require a lot of technical math knowledge, but require a lot of creativity mm. and a lot of, you know, a lot of thinking. Can you describe what a specific mm -hmm. puzzle might have been? Uh, just so we can understand a little better what a non-mathematical puzzle that exercises the muscles that you will eventually use for math, what that might mm -hmm. feel like itself. Sure, 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 sure. Here's a good example. Suppose you have a uh, tree branch, a stick, and it's a meter long. You put 10 ants on the stick randomly, and each ant sort of like travels at a speed of like a meter per minute. Mm -hmm. And when two ants bump into each other, they just both turn around and go the opposite direction. And if they hit the end of the stick, they fall off. How long do you have to wait until there's no more ants on the stick? John, I, I am so ill-equipped to answer the puzzle that you apparently solved when you were how old? Well, it's a, this is a good example. It's a good example because it requires like no math like knowledge. It just requires some, some thinking. There's always a trick mm -hmm. to think about. And what makes this problem complicated is the fact that when ants bump into each other, they go in the opposite direction until you realize that two ants bumping into each other and going the opposite direction, well, that's just the same as them passing over each other. Mm. Swap the assignment right, of ants. Right, like can, right, 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 yeah, right, right. You can just swap their numbers however you think about them. <laughs> And so really, like, you can just pretend, like, <laughs> the ants don't bump into each other at all. So, like, if they travel at a meter per minute, all it's going to take is a minute. See, I might have guessed a minute, honestly, but the explanation why would have been uh, entirely something I could not have given you. Yeah. And for the listener now, I do know that all of that might have been hard to follow as well. But the point here just seems to be that it's less about understanding how you got to the answer and more about understanding that your brain, John, works just a little differently than others. When I think about math, and I, I like to believe when anyone should think about math, they shouldn't be thinking, oh, here are some numbers, here are some equations, here are some formulas. They should be thinking, here is a language that describes, a universal language that describes the world we live in, that is a quantitative way for us to cope mm. with the world around us. And through studying that language and studying techniques in that language, it allows us to be better problem solvers. So math, I really think of as like a problem solving language. It's not about like the formulas or the uh, equations you study in school. It's knowing those tips and tricks and ideas, but then being able to use them. But so when did football enter your mind as a thing that you also fell in love with? So I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and my dad lived in Canada. And when I would visit my dad in his uh, home office, there was this picture up on the wall, and it was a picture of him like in action playing football. 
playing linebacker for the University of Alberta. And I would always look at that picture, like especially by myself, and I would always think, I want to be just like my dad. Mm. I want to be a football player. And so I started playing football in high school because of my dad. And from the very first practice, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Like I just, I didn't know what I was doing. My technique was horrible. You know, I didn't even know how to put on my pads correctly, but I just loved getting out there, running around and just like hitting people. <laughs> but it seems like football provided you with, with an architecture mm -hmm. that, that you ended up really enjoying to the point where, yeah, you go through high school in Buffalo, you go to Penn State, mm -hmm. one of these premier football programs in America. And what was your, what was the logic there in terms of why you wanted to go there as opposed to another place? Oh, so first of all, I didn't really have many options. I think I should be very straightforward about this. I was like a two-star recruit. I didn't have like a big time division one offer until like January of my senior year. Mm. And so I got an offer from Penn State. And I just always grew up watching Big Ten football. I loved watching like Michigan. I was a big Michigan fan growing up, like a Jake Long fan. Mm. And just the prospect of being an offensive lineman in the Big Ten was just a huge draw for me. And so when you get to college, mm -hmm. how is it that math enters, enters the picture there? So it was never a serious thing for me in school, like through middle school or high school. I was always very good at it relative to other people at my school. I was always sort of like the person where if someone didn't do their homework and it's 10 minutes before homeroom starts, they would just be like running through the halls to find me <laughs> to like, like just give them the yep. answer to like 20 yep. different yep. questions. But I never really did anything more with it than that. And it wasn't until I got to college, I started out majoring in aerospace engineering just because my mom told me to. So I said, okay, and I started majoring in that. But then, you know, I started taking math classes, started taking engineering classes. And engineering classes were very much focused on the sort of how. We know some things are true. Now, how do we use them to like solve you know, problems we encounter in the world. And math was so much more focused, especially at the university level, on the why. Understanding why something is true. Understanding the structure of things and trying to, like, really understand what's going on. And that just really captured me. And so, like, from my very first college math classes, it just sort of grew more and more. And eventually, I got to a point where I knew, like, while at Penn State, I want to be a career mathematician. This is going to be my life's career. And when is it also clear to you that this will be a passion you pursue in parallel? That there is going to be NFL aspirations here, but also, yes, college level and beyond mathematics. So, you know, I'm playing football for Penn State and I'm really enjoying it. And then my junior year finishes and my sort of like offensive line coach sort of says, all right, John, now like you're coming back for another season. Like don't get any nonsense in your head. Like, and... No nonsense had ever been in my head. I was not even thinking about like mm. leaving Penn State. And that made me think, oh. Maybe there should be know, some nonsense in my maybe head. Maybe like, <laughs> yeah, maybe there should be some like mild nonsense <laughs> in my head. I didn't really ever think about like, yes, you know, as a kid, you think like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to play in the NFL? 
thought about it for a little while and I thought, you know what? I can put math on hold. Like I should spend some time playing in the NFL because you can only do this once, you know? Might as well become the equivalent of a rocket scientist in football. Yeah. So I thought, you know, if I have the opportunity, I'm going to do it. And so at some point, because senior year, right, you become first Mm -hmm. team all conference, you're first team all Big Ten, you're really good, you're now a prospect. You come a long way from being the two-star recruit who just got offered late by by Penn State. You know, at a certain point, it must become clear to you that there is tension between your academic interests and your athletic reputation. How did you begin to realize that there would be complications when it came to that? This was a very simplistic view in hindsight, but like myself, after my senior year, I thought, I'm going to go play in the NFL. I'm going to take a break from academia. Yes, I'll still, you know, read some math, read some books, write some papers, but by and large, I'm taking a full break and focusing on the NFL. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm an offensive lineman. I played guard in college. In the league, I played center and guard. And uh, someone got injured. I end up going in, I think it's the second to last game of the year. We're away at Houston and it's the fourth quarter. We're down and like I go in at guard and obviously like now I'm dealing with like JJ Watt (laughs) and it's just like all passing down. So like (laughs) I get a trial by fire and I do quite well. And then I, I play well in the playoffs and After the season, everyone's very happy with me. Everyone's like high on me. But at the same time, like my first year really just didn't feel great. Mm. And it didn't feel great because I just felt like something was missing. Like I I legitimately missed academia. I missed being in an environment where I'm talking to people, I'm hanging out with people, and we're just talking about math, we're talking about science. And that sort of culture is something I really miss. And I didn't realize how unhappy I would be without it. And so because of that, I, I applied for like PhD programs. And a PhD in itself is a very, very, it's a very serious career. Yeah, it's ridiculously and intense. Yeah, I did not realize this at the time. I did not realize how bad of a football decision this was. <laughs> so walk me through exactly how it is that this became a decision that was terrible on the football side. Horrible football decision. So I say, okay, I want to do this. So first I check with the Ravens. I say, hey, I think I want to go back to school and get my degree. And they say, of course, John, like we support that. And so I say, okay, cool. So then I apply to MIT and I end up getting accepted, except they don't do part-time students. Of course not. Of course not. Why, 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 would, why would any PhD program, let alone MIT's PhD program, do part-time students? Yeah. Like, of course not. So it's like, no, John, but you, uh, you have to be full-time. And so it's like, okay, I have to be full-time. I can be away in the fall, but I still have to be full-time in the fall. Mm. So my very first spring there, I'm taking a full course load. I'm working very hard and I absolutely love it. I was so happy. And it was just so hard to leave. Well, it, it's funny, right? Because you sort of yada, yada, yada over like, ah, oh, the fall. Can't be, can't be around in the fall. Because that's when the football happens, John. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is when the football happens. So then, you know, I go back to Baltimore. And at first, it's a little tough. I'm missing MIT. But then I get back into the swing of things. You start doing your workouts. Then you get to OTAs, minicamp, and I'm back in the swing of things. And so then the fall comes around. And then this is when it, like, really starts to dawn on me. I have three PhD-level courses <laughs> at MIT that I am taking that I am doing assignments for, that I am reading books for, while I am doing a full NFL oh. season. We were one of the rare teams where we had Mondays off and we came in on Tuesdays. So I play the game on Sunday. And, and this is what season, by the way? What year are we in? 2016. So I would play the game, like a one o'clock game, I'm in street clothes by like 4.30. Get home from Sunday night all the way until Tuesday like morning when I have to go lift. All I am doing is math. <laughs> I am spending like, it's not even 48 hours, like 40 hours and trying to catch up and read and do the assignments for three of my classes, for all three of my classes. And give us give us a taste of these classes by just giving us the names of these classes, if you could recall them, please. So I took a course in probability theory. I took a course in spectral graph theory. And I cannot remember the third. Just some, just some light beach reads, yeah. Spectral graph theory. And yeah. So the season finishes, and unfortunately, we don't make the playoffs. So then for the month of January, because my qualifying exams were like the first week of February, the whole month of January, I like lock myself in my office and I am just studying and doing math for like functionally, I don't know, 14 hours a day. Oh my God. Not going anywhere, not seeing anyone. I'm only breaking to eat and I'm doing this for a month because I'm cramming for my quals when I should have been prepping for them like all fall. So there's a world in which the Ravens win the Super Bowl and you fail your PhD program. There's no like there's no way I pass my balls <laughs> if we make it to the Super Bowl. And I was just ready to like and at that point I'm just rolling the dice. Coming up. What else was going on inside John's head besides math? Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, John, so you get to this point where your love of doing math and your love of playing professional football are becoming incompatible. But that was 
also not the only thing that you were confronting at the time, right? Because in spring of 2015, and this is after your first NFL season, a whole year before you start that PhD program, Chris Borland, the 49ers linebacker, announces that he is voluntarily retiring from the league after one season, and he is 24 years old, and he is explicitly citing concerns about the long-term effects of repetitive head trauma. And after that, I remember, John, you writing this essay for the Players' Tribune that's titled, Why I Still Play Football. So why did you write that? What were you trying to express at that time? First of all, I love Chris Borland to death. Chris is awesome. Such a cool guy. Amazing football player. Yes. Let me tell you, oh my Lord. Chris uh, played football for Wisconsin. He played linebacker. Yeah. So I played guard for Penn State. So we would face each other a lot. And I remember, I remember the first time I came across Chris was my sophomore year. He's like short, stocky, and just like a bowling ball. Gets the pitch. What, what a collision with Borland. Holy smokes. And I just remember every time I had to block this dude, this dude's like the crown of his helmet is going right in my face mask or on my chin. And I'm just having a bad time. <laughs> it's just like, I'm going to have a headache. It's just not going to be pleasant. Yes. 5'11", 250, eventual third rounder. Yeah, like a really good inside linebacker. Yeah, like you just know when you're going to play Chris, my head is going to hurt after this game. Mm. You just know it's going, you just, it's unavoidable. And this time Jennings goes nowhere. It's the new tackling machine, Chris Borland. Uh, Chris Borland. So yeah, had a great year for the 49ers. Oh, he was an all rookie, all rookie selection um, that year, according to the Pro Football Writers of America. Yeah. And so he retires. Surprising announcement, getting a lot of attention overnight, made by a rising NFL star. Yeah, just 24 years old, Chris Borland of the 49ers is retiring after one season. He says he's leaving the game because of concerns about head trauma. So many people were asking me about it. So many people were like bothering me about it. And the main thing I wrote about was that, uh, you know, yes, I completely understand why he did this. Yes, this makes sense. But uh, really, I just love running around and hitting people and I want to keep doing this. But then this other thing happens to you, right? That same year, 2015, along all of these lines. Explain what happened in the preseason. So it's training camp. It's practice week. And I think we've already played maybe a preseason game or two. We're doing nine on seven. And the whole idea is the offense is running the football. The defense knows the offense is running the football. And the goal is to run the ball anyway. The play, it's a run inside. And me, as a guard, I am going from one side of the line, down the line, to kick out a defender at the end of the line of scrimmage. You're a moving battering ram. I'm a moving battering ram. And who is coming... <laughs> <laughs> very quickly and aggressively, but Terrell Suggs. Mm. I mean, Terrell Suggs, for those who are uninitiated, right? 6'3", 270. Just mm -hmm. one of the most feared seven-time pro bowlers to ever play the position. Yeah. Who manages to get me, I believe, right around here, like right around my temple area. You're, yeah, you're pointing to your right temple. 
Yeah, and so he just knocks me out. The aftermath of that, when do you sort of click back in and regain a memory of where you were and what was going on? Oh, it was a little fuzzy. I mean, I remember being like in in the training room. Mm. And then it like for a cup for a bunch of days, it was just like sensitivity to light, a little bit of like nauseousness when I try to exercise. And yeah, it took a while. It took a couple weeks, actually. But I'm curious. When you came to, and you are this person who prides himself on, on his ability to, to do math. Yeah. W- what did your ability to do math feel like after the concussion? Oh, I was, it was fuzzy. Like I, I really had trouble visualizing things and like holding things in my head and thinking about things. Like I would get a headache. Mm. You know, I would try to do research and like my head would hurt. And, you know, it was just, it was at the time, it was just, I was very annoyed because I can't play football. And also, like, I'm here, I'm in my hotel room, and like, I literally cannot do math either. And like, I'm just frustrated for like two weeks. So, how does this connect to your decision to eventually leave football? This is the hilarious thing. I don't know if it's like the way the brain protects itself, or I don't know how to describe it. I retire. Ravens O-line John Urschel, 26, abruptly retires days after findings of CTE study were released. A team source told ESPN that the findings weighed heavy on the 26-year-old's bold move. People obviously want to talk to me about it. Someone asked me about my concussion my second year in the league, and I didn't even, I forgot about it. I can't, like, this is going to sound crazy. People, you know, you think, oh, you retired. Like, you know, you thought a lot about that, yes. uh, that other yes, concussion. Yes, this is 2017. The concussion happened. The traumatic experience you just described was 2015. Yeah, yeah. So 2017, I retire. This happens in 2015. Completely forgot about it. Man. It, like, wasn't even in my head. And as strange as it sounds, like, yeah, I retired. Yeah, I thought about my health. But somehow, like, the fact that that occurred and that, like, you know, three weeks of my life exists... I legitimately just like forgot about, did not think about, and was just like not in my mind at all. So explain why it is that you decided to stop playing football if it was not because you were haunted by the loss of brain function that you wanted to rely on for the rest of your, yeah, the rest of your days on this earth. Yeah, I mean, I would say pretty simply put, probably three things. One, doing both math and football at the same time really was not like, a good long-term solution. And I wanted a chance to be a serious sort of full-time mathematician. So the main thing is football was third on my list of like most important things. The first being like family. So I, uh, I had a daughter, I have a daughter mm-hmm. and all of a sudden I start thinking about like, I want to be around for my daughter when she gets older. I want to, you know, be in good shape so that, you know, I can spend time with my children, like watch them grow up and be in good shape. And so that was really important to me. All of a sudden, my health became much, much more important to me than it ever was before. Second, math was probably number two. Like I just loved my time at MIT and it became like abundantly clear that I really did love math more than football. And then football's third and well... I love football. I'm so glad I got to play football. I, college football was like my favorite time playing football. I also love pro football, you know, playing against 
the highest sort of level of competition. But if football is third on your list, given like how much it takes and how dangerous it is, this is not something you should be doing. I love football. I love watching football. I love being connected to football. And yeah, and I'm so happy like I had the chance to to play football. It's not for everyone. Definitely not for everyone, but it's uh it's something special. Up next, football may not be for everyone, but John Urschel explains how math could be. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot, taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. So we're back in the present now, John, and you have your PhD. Finally, you've been doing a bunch of things in academia for the past year or so, and you're going to be transitioning to the role of assistant professor at MIT next year. And that involves teaching, research, but it also just brings us to this question of what exactly a mathematician does all day. So when people ask you that, what do you say to them? I think it can be described in a very complicated, unintuitive way that makes it sound like very mysterious and very technical and very hard to do. But it's literally just like trying to solve puzzles all day. I sit around all day and I think and I write things down and I try to solve some puzzle, some problem that no one has solved before that is important for one reason or another. And I am sitting and I'm trying to understand what is the structure of it? What are the tricks? What are the ways that I can take what I know about this problem and think about it in a new light that allows me to make what seems very complicated simple. So when I think about a complicated puzzle, 
where all of this might go from theoretical to very practical. I do think of the collision that is ongoing between math and football. And it's especially a thing this season, yeah. right? Around when to go for it on fourth down, when to go for two versus kick the extra point. So what emotions do you feel personally as people are fumbling their way through the haze of football analytics? Yeah, that fumbling that like fumbling through that, I'm a little less sympathetic <laughs> to in that a lot of things have been well known for a very long time. Uh, there's a lot of very simple analysis. And <sighs> I don't know. I think I have a feeling you do know, and that's the problem. One, I think it's getting a lot better. Like I think a lot of pro teams and college teams are recognizing that there are some ways to improve your sort of like uh, outcomes, expected outcomes, by making very simple changes. The ways in which you can improve how your team does just through simple changes in your decision making, that's easy to do as opposed to, you know, the more difficult things like becoming a better football team. And so <laughs> I think a lot of teams realize that and they have been making adjustments, you know, making better decisions about going forward on fourth down, making better decisions about when to go for two, things like this. And of course, there's still going to be a gray area where maybe, you know, the numbers say do this, but it's only very mild. Sure. And at that point, you should trust the fact that these are numbers based off sort of uh, generalizations. You are in the football game that you're currently in and you should make a decision there. But when things are sort of screaming at you, unless you have a very good reason why you should ignore that data, you should probably listen and do that decision. And so the communication, though, I mean, the, the idea of how to message this stuff, the idea of how to sell math mm -hmm. to a population that sees math as a threat, as a matter of culture, of business, of way of life. Mm -hmm. How do you do that, John? You sell it as a tool. Like any tool, you sell it as something that clearly is helpful in some situations. And in others, you should have the intelligence and the ability to recognize when you should use this and when you shouldn't. The idea that a tool like can be bad is kind of somewhat of a silly thing. If you understand the tool you have, you understand it well, you understand how it was built, you understand what it's saying, and what it actually isn't, that's more information for you to make better decisions. And I think that's a net positive. And I think viewing it as anything other than that is sort of like a little closed-minded. And part of that issue is, you know, as a decision maker, as a football coach, you should understand where this data is coming from, where this decision-making is coming from, and understand the benefits, but also the pitfalls. Like if this decision-making is coming from aggregated data of NFL games over the past decade, mm -hmm. then you should be able to recognize, yes, they're telling me this, but this is how strongly they're telling me this. And how strongly do I feel like I am in an atypical situation that calls for something different than the norm? I, I guess what I wanted to also ask you about mathematical fluency, right? Part of the story of quote-unquote analytics in sports is a story of math and science education 
And it's a story of who gets to practice and study and be really good at that stuff mm -hmm. and how it is that in sports, that pipeline tends to surface people who are disproportionately demographically one way and not another. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your experience in that way, going through math yourself? Math is, is strange in this way. Most people will tell you some people are born math people and some people just aren't. And they will tell you that when it comes to the people who are the very best at math, they're born like baby geniuses. Mm -hmm. And this is strongly supported by modern media. Like in film, when you have a movie about a mathematician, it's never like the math, like the mathematician solves the problem like in the bar or whatever. Yeah, goodwill hunting. Yes. Goodwill hunting or beautiful yep. mind. You're always writing on glass, by the way. There's always a lot of just like... Yeah, yeah. always writing on glass. <laughs> that only happens in the movies. It's always about like this person is so brilliant. They've been a genius this whole time. Their big struggle is like fitting into society and making people understand their genius. And they just magically stumble upon the solution to the problem they're working on. Mm -hmm. And it's not the fact that these people spent tens of thousands of hours getting very, very good at what they've been doing from a very young age. Like, it's not the fact that they work really, really hard and have had really, you know, really great opportunities. And I think that focus on ability to do math being something innate is a disservice. Yes, an ability to sort of like quantitatively reason well is important, but I think like beyond a threshold, the single most important thing is opportunity. I mean, it, it starts with early education. I, the majority of damage is done before a student even steps foot on a college campus. And the sort of spectrum of the quality of mathematics education someone obtains based off like socioeconomic status just varies widely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if a student doesn't have a strong math background, it doesn't matter like how, you know, smart or talented they are, they're going to have a hard time when they get to college. If I'm a first year undergrad at MIT and I walk into a math class and everyone in the math class knows way more than me, do I really want to be a mathematician? when like everyone here is already better than me. The way that analytics in sports gets also to be a tense subject, right? Is, is the fact that football is a sport that is 70 something percent African-American. Mm -hmm. And math is, I don't know what your sense of the demographics are, John, <laughs> but. I mean, it's like, I mean, Black mathematicians, we're like, uh, we're like unicorns. There's, like, there's not many of us. Yeah. Right. And so what, what would you like to see as, as that pipeline is fed by people who, yeah, do not have that commonality with the people actually playing the game, putting their bodies on the line? How much mm -hmm. does that concern you as this conversation goes? Yeah, I mean, it's part of, uh, it's part of this broader discussion of our talent pool not matching like our results at the end. And like when you look at like our talent pool in the US and you look at the results that we're getting at the end, you have to think that somehow like all these characteristics scale like strongly with like ability to do math or you're left with the really sad realization that we have lots of talented young people simply born into the wrong household 
and that we're actually failing them. And that way we're actually failing ourselves because we're actually like harming the quality of our workforce. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, inequality in education is like, this is like the, one of the biggest problems we face in the US. And I'll just tell you right now, I don't know the answer. I like to believe that the internet has helped change this in the sense that anyone, no matter where they are in the country, can obtain an incredibly high level education through the internet. Whereas, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, this was not a thing. This was not possible. It just wasn't possible at all. Yeah, I mean, look, John, th there are like a number of rabbit holes I can continue to tumble down with you. Um, chess, uh, you're on the college football playoff committee, which is its own episode that we need to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I, I mean, gosh, I, I guess my question at the end then to sort of weave all of this together is when you watch football, what do you feel? Mm -hmm. When you watch the Ravens maybe tonight playing Thursday Night Football, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you feel? What, what goes through your brain then? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm watching a good game. I'm looking forward to seeing how everyone performs. Somehow my eyes like naturally always go towards the offensive linemen. So, you know, I'll be critiquing <laughs> silently <laughs> saying like, oh, the right guard should have done this. Oh, they missed that block. Oh, the center called the wrong ID on that. Yeah. Somehow, even though I've been retired for some time now, it's really hard to turn off that like analytical sort of like engine. And no part of you is wondering what it might be like to block for Lamar Jackson, though? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. I can tell you with 100% certainty, I am living my best life. <laughs> I wake up in the morning, like I get my daughter ready for school. I come into the office. I have a nice little espresso and I sit in my office and I just think all day. <laughs> And I get paid to do that. Yeah, yeah. The worst physical thing that can happen to me in a day is I get a paper cut. <laughs> like, I am so grateful to have played football, but like having experienced and lived the life that I'm living now, there's no way I could ever go back. <laughs> I wouldn't make it. Things are too nice now. John Urschel, thank you for inviting us into that office and thank you for telling us what your best life is actually like. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.